0: Let me add my voice to those who've welcomed you this morning. I'm Nathan Boyette. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so happy to see all of you this morning. We're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts, and today we're going to be looking at Acts 6, 8 to 15, and 7, 54 to 60. Now, those two passages seem really far apart, but they're the same event. Uh, Right in the middle is Stephen's lengthy speech before the Sanhedrin. And next week, Pastor Harrison will unpack that sermon that Stephen gives to the Sanhedrin uh, next week. This week, we're going to look at the bookends of those speech, what happens before leading up to it, and what happens after in response to what Stephen says. So let's read the word of the Lord, Acts 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And then Stephen has a moment to speak to the entire council, and we see the result in 7, verse 54, where after hearing his words, it reads, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in every time and place, you use it to encourage and strengthen your people. We pray, please speak through it now to each one of us. Holy Spirit, you are present here. We welcome you and pray that you would speak to us and encourage and challenge our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A major theme of the book of Acts is the work of the Spirit in the advancement of God's kingdom. Acts models how the Christian life should be lived out by imperfect men and women in reliance on the Holy Spirit. And in our passage today, we see that demonstrated in the account of Stephen and how Stephen lives and acts. We see this in a couple of places. Last week when Harrison spoke about how the apostles chose the different deacons, we heard in 6 verse 5 how the apostles chose Stephen because he was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And in the rest of the verses of chapter 6, we see Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, boldly proclaiming the gospel to all that will hear. And so we see him full of grace and power, doing wonders and signs by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, as a result of his proclamation of the gospel, different Jewish leaders want to dispute and argue with him, and he is so full of the Spirit and wisdom that they cannot stand against him in argument. The result is he's brought before the council, and he proclaims the gospel boldly, and they attack him. And we see at the moment of his death in 755 how it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's a perfect example of what we looked at earlier in the book of Acts. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and so he lived a radical, unashamed life for Jesus. Left to his own devices, Stephen could not have been so radical, so unashamedly for Jesus. Left to our own devices, we will not live radically different from the world that we find ourselves in. We need God's help to do that. And God has graciously given us his Holy Spirit so that we can live the radical, unashamed life that he calls each one of us to live. Jerry Bridges calls this dependent responsibility. He writes, we are 100% responsible for the pursuit of holiness, But at the same time, we are 100% dependent upon the Holy Spirit to enable us in that pursuit. The pursuit of holiness is not a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps approach to the Christian life. It's not a you-can-do-it-all-on-your-own type of life. Rather, we could compare the Christian life to that of a kite, Anybody who's gone and flown a kite knows that if you don't have the string which attaches the kite to the ground, or if you don't have some good, strong wind, the kite's not going anywhere. You need both. You need a taut string anchoring the kite to the ground. Without any string, the kite will fly radically out of control and crash into the ground and be broken. Without the wind, the kite won't even take off. In the same manner, the Christian life needs the fresh, empowering wind of the Holy Spirit, and our active participation in order to really fly. Without, either, without one of the, the two, the Christian life doesn't happen. But sin makes living this life of dependent responsibility incredibly difficult. The world stands in opposition to God in His way, so we have sin on the outside, In our passage, the leading religious and cultural influences of the day opposed Stephen. They were angered by his proclamation of the gospel. They were sinfully opposed to God's way. The early Christian's message was radically countercultural. First century life in Jerusalem was revolved around the temple, the Jewish law, and the Jewish religion. The message of the gospel of Jesus pushed into each one of those pillars of first century life. So there is sin on the outside, but there is sin also. Each one of us has sinful opposition on the inside, sin in our own lives. So we have to struggle through dependent responsibility to live the life that Jesus calls us to live. But we see today in our passage a big idea that because King Jesus has given his people his Holy Spirit, we should live our lives unashamedly, radically for him. Let me say that again. Because King Jesus has given his people the Holy Spirit, We should live our lives unashamedly, radically for him. And we see this demonstrated in three ways in Stephen's life. Stephen proclaiming Jesus, Stephen loving his enemies, and Stephen trusting the Lord. So let's look first. First, proclaiming Jesus. The first way we see Stephen living radically, unashamedly for Jesus is by gospel proclamation. In chapter 6, verse 8, we see that Stephen is full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. In our previous studies of Acts, we've noted how these signs and wonders that are being done always accompanied gospel proclamation. The signs and wonders were never the goal. The goal was for the signs and wonders to be done so that the message that the people were proclaiming was affirmed. So, the signs and wonders accompanied gospel proclamation, and we see that as in verse 9, we read, some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen rose up and disputed with Stephen. They didn't like what he was saying. They didn't like what he was saying about Jesus, the Savior. And so they rose up and they had an argument with him. Most likely, they had a debate where people gathered together and argued with Stephen and they listened. But they cannot withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. And so as a result, they create false witnesses. They instigate the whole entire Jewish culture against him so that the council, the leading governmental body of the day, gets him and brings him before them and the people who dispute with him get false witnesses who twist his message, twist it so that it says, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. If we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. We see that they've twisted his message stully. It has a little bit of the truth that Stephen was most likely speaking, but they twisted it and changed it because they were in opposition to him. And next week we'll get to see how he proclaims the gospel even more boldly and at length in the 53 verses of his sermon. But the result is that they take him out of the city and want to stone him. And even as he's being stoned, in verse 56, we see him proclaim, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen uses a very special term here, the Son of Man." This term was a favorite term of self-identification for Jesus. In fact, this is the only place in the entire New Testament where somebody other than Jesus says "Son of Man. See, the term "son of Man" was used by Jesus to both identify with humanity and to identify with the redemptive purposes of Jesus Christ, or, uh, redemptive purposes, purposes of God the Father. Jesus, by using this term, was placing himself in redemptive history as the exalted figure who would bring salvation. In Jesus's use of this term throughout the Gospels, the term had divine and redemptive connotations. And the leading Jewish religious leaders who were listening to Stephen speak would have known that. They would have known because it was just a a year or two before that Jesus was proclaiming himself the son of man before them the day he was murdered on the cross. So the result is that Stephen, unashamed, radically, is proclaiming Jesus as God and Savior, both before the council and before all the people. And if you're familiar with the passage, Saul, who eventually became the apostle Paul, was there watching him And we shouldn't be surprised that after Saul's radically changed through his experience with the risen Savior, Jesus, he writes in Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Stephen understood this. Paul later came to understand this. We should not be ashamed of proclaiming the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. The reality is that sin could be compared to a disease, a deadly disease where every single person who has it gets the same end, eternal death and separation from God. And there's no cure except for one, the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only cure. And there's no avoiding this disease. Everybody has it. We're all born with it. And we need that cure. We all live in times where we all understand this reality of disease and cure. We're all desperately waiting for the coronavirus vaccine to become widespread so we can get rid of these masks and we can return to life to, as normal. I was fascinated to read that when the COVID virus was identified in December of 2019 and January of 2020, it was actually two days after the coronavirus was Uh, genetically studied two days after they understood all of its genetic code that the Moderna vaccine was designed two days after the genetic code was discovered back in January 2020 we had the vaccine the researcher had already discovered it it had to of course go through the trials and all the preparations for it to now be rolled out but what if that researcher said well that's interesting I'll put that in my research file and I won't tell anybody about it that would have been ridiculous He had the cure. He had to tell people about it. In the same way, we have the cure to the most horrific disease that humanity has ever faced, sin. But there's been a large cultural shift in America in the past 20 years. I think the vast majority of Christians no longer view themselves as the dominant worldview of our culture. And along with this shift, has come a greater hesitancy to proclaim the gospel. There was a recent survey in 2019 by Barna, a Christian group. They surveyed American Christians, and it showed that across generations, 95% of responders agreed with the following two statements. First, part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. Second, the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. We should expect that. Yes, 95% of Christian responders to those two statements agreed. But there was a third statement that was very shocking to me. The statement was it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith. And this received very different responses. Millennials, of which I am one, Millennials, 47% of responders agreed with that statement. Nearly 50% of millennial Christians said it's wrong to share your faith with somebody of a different faith. And 20% of every other generational group from Gen X all the way up to Baby Boomers and on agreed with that statement. That is a huge shift from even 20 years ago. So many American Christians struggle with the tension that they are commanded to share their faith, but it's wrong to want to tell other people of different points of view about Christianity. Scott Sauls, a pastor in his book, A Gentle Answer, writes how in Western culture, Christians have, are no longer viewed as with favor as friends, but they're actually now increasingly being viewed as enemies by the dominant culture, He says that this shift is due to three reasons. First, a view among society that Christians are hypocrites. Second, many in society see Christians repeatedly conflating Christianity with partisan politics. And third, many outside the Christian faith view Christians as lacking humility, approachability, and empathy. These are things that surveys have identified people that are outside of Christianity think of us. This radical shift has caused us as Christians to be hesitant to speak about the life changing, life saving gospel that we believe and have. A good development in the past 20, 30 years is that Christians are more active in deeds of mercy and speaking out about societal issues and justice than ever before. And we should be active in deeds of mercy. We should be advocating for justice and reform. But we must continue. To proclaim the wonderful gospel of salvation the hope that we as christians possess is unlike anything else that this world has to offer another pastor michael horton wrote in a recent article on the gospel coalition he wrote the good news is not moral improvement or a christian society or any political system no the good news is the announcement that in his incarnation obedient life." sacrificial death and resurrection, Jesus Christ has accomplished redemption from sin, death, and hell, and has reconciled sinners with God. This is the good news that we need to proclaim. This is what we need to be active in talking with our neighbors, our coworkers, and our friends about. I think one of the largest reasons that Christians do not speak about the gospel with others is fear. We're afraid of what people are going to think of us. We're afraid of the relationships that are going to be broken. We're afraid that people are going to judge us and want nothing to do with us. Too often, that does happen, but it's because Christians have shared the gospel in a confrontational manner, or we've shared the gospel with people that we don't actually have relationships with. That's the first thing we do with them. So, of course, they don't want to hear anything from us. Another reason that we don't share the gospel is that we don't know any non-Christians. We only exist in this bubble where we only know people who think the same as us. So we don't go out and do what Jesus has commanded us to do. So what do we do? I've got three Ps for you. Pray, prepare, and practice. Pray, first pray. Pray for the people in your life. Pray that God would bring non-Christians into your life. Pray for your neighbors, your coworkers, your family who might not know Jesus and your friends. Pray for them. Pray that as Fred talked about, pray for them that God would prepare them and provide opportunities for you to talk with them about this life giving hope. Second, prepare. Prepare by developing relationships with non-Christians. Prepare by going over to your neighbor and saying, "Hey, I just want to introduce myself. Hey, I brought you these cookies. Hey, I'd love for you to come over for a barbecue. Maybe not now because it's kind of cold, but when it's spring, hey, let's go do something fun together. Prepare by developing relationships with people so that when God provides you an opportunity to share the gospel, you have that relationship in which they will want to listen to you. And prepare by becoming the person that they will want to listen to. Prepare by Showing, developing yourself humility. Prepare by developing in yourself approachability, empathy. Are we the type of people that somebody will want to listen to? So prepare by developing relationships and developing character. And practice. Practice preaching the gospel. Practice proclaiming it. Sometimes we don't know the words to speak. We're not ready to share it. But the wonderful, awesome reality is that the gospel is not just for non-Christians. The gospel is for Christians as well, because one of the primary ways that God uses, that God grows and develops us, is through the gospel. As we proclaim the gospel to ourselves every day, we will grow in the holiness that God desires for us, and we will be prepared to talk to other people about Christianity. If you don't know how to practice that, please, there's so many different methods of sharing the gospel. I encourage you to find one that works for you and proclaim the gospel to yourself on a daily, weekly basis. Okay, we got a book because I'm going a little longer. The second way we see Stephen living radically unashamedly for Jesus is how he loves his enemies just as Jesus loved his enemies. In chapter 7, verse 60, we see that as Stephen is being stoned, he falls to his knees and he cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This is an intentional echo by the author, Luke, of Jesus' death on the cross. In Luke 23, 34, as Jesus was dying on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus radically took the law of God And helped his listeners understand the true depths of it the true depths of the command to love your neighbor in matthew 5 in the sermon on the mount jesus said you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you see it was a common saying of the day you shall love your neighbor is a biblical command leviticus 19 but hate your enemy that's not in the bible that was What they took, they took the command and they said, yeah, love your neighbor, but it's okay to hate your enemy. And Jesus says, no, you are to have no enemies as Christians. You are to love everybody the same because everybody is to be your neighbor. We see in Stephen's actions, love even for his enemies. And that's why Stephen unashamedly proclaimed the gospel to the crowds. He loved them. He wanted them to believe. He wanted them to be saved. Too often we think of love as a squishy, unconfrontational love. Modern American culture hasn't done us any favors by saying that love is purely romantic or purely feelings. We may read Acts 6 verse 15's description of Stephen have the face of an angel as this type of love. But Luke is not communicating a baby-like angel face on Stephen when he says his face was like a face of an angel. Rather, he's commuting that his face is a glow as Moses' face was a glow when he came down from the mountain at Sinai where he was communing with God. Stephen's words in his speech may not have seemed very loving. We're going to see that next week. But he calls the people who are listening stiff-necked, uncircumcised. He said that they personally killed Jesus. His speech probably didn't seem loving to the people who heard it. Love doesn't just make people comfortable. It doesn't just tell people what they want to hear. It tells them what they need to hear. It tells them the truth, and sometimes the truth hurts. So, we need to have love and truth so as we live in reliance on the Holy Spirit, which King Jesus has given us, we will love our neighbor and even those who consider themselves our enemies. But it will not be a love that merely makes others comfortable. It will be a love that is relentlessly for the good of the other person. Do we love our enemies in the same manner that Stephen did? Do we love the people who consider us their enemies in the same manner? John 15 in his last night with the disciples, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And John, who was there listening to that later, wrote to the whole church and said that people will know you are the children of God because of your love. Our modern American society is more divided than ever. You, should be, you would be hard-pressed to not find in any issue where someone will oppose you, think you are different... Uh, think, think you are stupid for thinking differently than them, and we'll be very happy to tell you that, at least in the comments section on the internet. Our division is not peaceful and gentle. It's filled with anger and hate. Vilification, demonization of the other, the person who thinks differently is the name of the game. We've seen that written across the news, our society for years, the past many years. Pastor Scott Sauls, who I quoted earlier, noted how there's because of this shift in how Americans generally view Christians, he wants to contrast it with how Romans viewed the early Christians. And he writes, the average Roman citizen held Christians in high esteem because of how life-giving they were as neighbors. If you were poor, sick, disabled, a widow, an abused woman, or an at risk child, you knew that the Jesus followers who gathered as a local church were the best people to go for love, acceptance, non judgmentalism, and care for your physical, emotional, financial, and spiritual needs. Is this what people think of us? Do they think we're the best place to go to be loved, accepted, cared for? Sadly, I don't think that's the case. We as Christians should be characterized by our love, even of our enemies. We should be loving even those who demonize us. But too often we have slogans like, come as you are, or all are welcome. And we forget to add, come as you are, but not if you're gay. Come as you are, but not if you're a drug addict or somebody who's been convicted of drug possession and selling drugs. Come as you are, but not if you're tattoos, and your piercings make me uncomfortable. Come as you are, but not if you dress in that way on a Sunday morning. Come as you are, but not if your political position is different from mine. All are welcome, but not if X, fill in the blank, whatever it might be. We put up these divisions, even as Christians, and forget about love. What will this love look like? No, it's not a wishy-washy acceptance of every position or every behavior, no. But it is a love of the person because God created every single person in his image and every person is valuable and able to be saved by Jesus Christ. This love will combine positions that our society typically doesn't combine, a passion for rigorous biblical truth and an advocacy for justice, a love for the unborn and a love for those wronged merely because of the color of their skin. A love for those in our country, a love for our country, and a love for those fleeing oppression in their homelands and trying to find refuge in our country. We can do both of those things. A compassion for those society has wronged and a compassion for those who are rightfully suffering the effects of their own sinful behaviors and crimes. We can have compassion for both. We can do all of this. The final way we see Stephen living unashamedly, radically for Jesus, is in how he trusts the Lord, even unto death. Stephen had multiple opportunities to back down, to diffuse the situation, to say, it's okay, guys, let's all be friends. But he didn't. He was filled with the Spirit, and he boldly proclaimed the gospel, and he didn't back down, and it led to his death. In verse 54, chapter 7, verse 54, When the crowd is enraged and they grind their teeth at him, he's full of the Holy Spirit and he gazes up into heaven and sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he tells them that. He says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God and they cry out with a loud voice and rushed him together. They cast him out of the city and as they're stoning him, even in death, Stephen trusts the Lord. He says in verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen unashamedly radically trusted the Lord, even unto death. Do we trust the Lord in the same manner? There are two factors that influence this development of trust. First, a knowledge of God's character and a knowledge of God's mission and plan. Stephen knew the character of the Lord he served, a God compassionate and gracious, a God that loves his people and cares for them and is working his plans out in the world. And Stephen was living in light of God's plan and mission rather than his own plan and mission. Stephen knew that this was the God who had come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ to die so that all of humanity would be saved. He knew that that was the mission. He knew Matthew 28 where Jesus had said, go proclaim this gospel to the whole world, make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you. If we know the character of of Jesus and our Father, if we live in light of God's mission, and plan, then we will trust the Lord in all situations and circumstances, even unto death. John Patton was an English missionary to the New Hebrides. There are these islands in the Pacific, and he went there in the 19th century. Some missionaries just a few years before he went had gone. They were attacked, killed, and eaten by cannibals, literally less than 30 minutes after getting off the boat. And John Patton was like, I'm gonna go with my young wife to this island. And as Patton and his wife were preparing to go, a respected elder from his church said, John, don't go, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. If you didn't pick that up, that's him saying, Mr. Dixon, you're, you're getting kind of old. You're advanced in years now and your own prospect, your own body is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. I mean, that's gotta be one of the best comebacks of all time, but (laughs) Mr. Dixit, he says, it doesn't matter to me, because I'm gonna die regardless. Eventually, I'm gonna die. And after I'm dead, maybe I'll be eaten by cannibals, maybe I'll be eaten by words. Somebody's going to eat me. But I want to live my life proclaiming Jesus, serving and honoring Him, and so I'm going to be concerned with my life, not my death. I'm going to be concerned with my life, not what happens to me on this earth, to my physical tent, my physical body. God's mission is the salvation and complete restoration of creation to His original good purposes. This mission will at times be in opposition to our expectations, to our plans, to our priorities. And when that happens, we should let God's plan, God's priorities win. 2020 was not what any of us wanted. I seriously doubt anybody here back in January 2020 was writing out their New Year's resolutions was like, yeah. I want to be in lockdown for a couple months. I want to do this. No, none of us wanted what happened this year, I'm sure. But it's what God gave us. And in his good, merciful purpose, 2020 was what each one of us needed. And he's going to use it in our lives in ways for the next decade that we don't even know yet. Romans 5 points us to how difficulty suffering produces hope and character. Listen as I read this. In Romans 5, verse 3, Paul writes, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Character trust in the Lord, hope in God, is developed through suffering, through difficult experiences. Too often, we wanna short-circuit the process, we want the character, we want the trust, we want the hope, but I don't want the suffering that produces it. I don't want the difficulty that I have to go through for God to develop those things in me. Each of us often has a script for how we want our lives to go. We each have a wonderful plan for our lives. And when God goes off our script, we get disappointed and angry. But God has a script, a script that sees each one of you saved into his family as a beloved daughter in God, that sees you growing in holiness, that sees you taking part in his mission. What do we do when we realize that our script, our plan and mission is different than God's? Well, we should confess and repent. We should pray for God to produce trust in our hearts. We should pray for God to help us to want that character, that development process he's taking us through. We should also go to the place where his script is clearly written out, his word. As individuals and His families, we desperately need God's word all of the time, in normal times and in times like this past year. But the reality is that we live in a fallen world where instability is normal. Suffering is normal. Nothing is permanent and stable in this world except God's Word. And so we need to go to it daily, weekly. But sadly, that's not what me, many in America do. A study by the American Bible Study, which they do every year, called the, uh, the, the Bible Survey, showed that in 2020, day, daily Bible reading declined compared to 2019. This study showed that adult Christians in America, the percent that read the Bible daily dropped to only 9% of responders. 9% of responders said, I read my Bible on a daily basis. The vast majority, the only time they engage with the Bible is on Sunday morning, here this can't be the only time we engage with God's Word. This can't be the only time we're singing worship songs and praying. You need a rich devotional life so that you know God's script and you're ready in those difficult times. Okay, we're going to conclude now. Thank you for your patience. Because King Jesus has given his people the Holy Spirit, we should live our lives unashamedly, radically for him. And we saw that as Stephen proclaimed Jesus, as he loved his enemies, and as he trusted the Lord even unto death, Stephen lived that radical, unashamed life. And we might think, how can I possibly do that? I can't be like Stephen. And we can't, I can't, not left to my own devices. But we see that Stephen couldn't have done that on his own either. But we see in the text hints of how he could by the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of King Jesus. We see in verse 55, as Stephen is being dragged away to be stoned, he sees the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was able to live radically unashamedly on God's mission because he knew Jesus was in control. He knew that Jesus was king over the whole universe. See, and it's also unique in that Typically, when this phrase, at the right hand of God, occurs, it's typically Jesus seated at the right hand of God. But here we see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's almost as if Stephen sees Jesus rising up to welcome him and say, well done, good and faithful servant. We see Jesus rising up to strengthen him. And it's the same for each one of us. Jesus is seated, sometimes standing, strengthening each one of us in our daily Christian life. Finally, the last hint we see in verse 60 where Stephen dies. Luke says he fell asleep. Is this just Luke being like, well, I can't talk about people dying. It might kind of offend people's sensibilities. No, he talked about Ananias and Sapphira dying just a couple chapters earlier. He said he fell asleep because this was a common early Christian way of saying death is but a moment. Death is us falling asleep before we will rise to new life and our true lives will begin again. That's the hope that we have. That's why we know that we can live this life unashamedly, radically for Jesus, because we have a great and future hope that we are waiting for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the king, seated on his throne, that you sometimes arise to give us power and strengthen us through your Holy Spirit. Lord God, we pray that you would help us as we face difficult times as we face individual personal suffering. Help us to live in light of the fact that you have given us your Holy Spirit, and we can live our lives unashamedly, radically for you. Lord, help us in this time to be devoted to you. And as we stumble, as we fall, we thank you that you forgive us, that you have graciously died for us, that we might be forgiven. And as we seek to live our lives for you, you will strengthen us and encourage us Pray this week as we go out, help us to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.